Welcome to the fifth and final episode of season two of the Bagley Wright Lecture Series on Poetry podcast. I'm Ellen Welker, coordinator for the series. The Bagley Wright Lecture Series is a nonprofit that supports contemporary poets as they explore in depth their own thinking on poetry and poetics and give a series of lectures resulting from these investigations. Lectures are delivered publicly in partnership with institutions and organizations nationwide. Season two of the podcast includes lectures written and delivered by Dorothea Lasky during her tenure as a Bagley Wright lecturer, and links to accessory materials like transcriptions, interviews, and other writings. To have episodes delivered directly to your device as soon as they're available, subscribe now. This week, we'll hear Dorothea Lasky give her lecture, The Bees. This lecture, the last in Lasky's book of poetry lectures, Animal, was recorded especially for this episode. Following the lecture, Lasky and I will have a brief wonder about bees, flies, pigs, and some of the ways we might live together better. Dorothea Lasky's lectures explore the nonlinear and highly complex relationship between language, color, time, and meaning-making, considering, for example, her personal history with color and the eye as multiplicitous shapeshifter in search of the wild power of poetry. Please enjoy this episode. The Bees. Bees as Ghost and Introduction. I have come to speak to you about the bees, the bees in poetry and the strange hexacomb which governs everything. I owe a lot of my thinking about bees and their mystical power to a movie I saw with my husband, Tom Donovan, now over 10 years ago on one of our first dates. I was living in Philadelphia and would visit him in his apartment in the Lower East Side in Manhattan. And one night we watched a movie, Wax, or The Discovery of Television Among the Bees. I remember how fond he was of the movie, how he seemed to be enraptured by the strange narrative of it. In the movie, a man who is the main narrator realizes that for his job, he is actually making missiles for the first Iraq war in the 1990s. He has a breakdown of sorts, realizing that he is actually doing harm, that his work is, in part, that of a mass murderer. After having this realization, he turns to his work with the bees, as he is also a bee husbander. He seems to start to have a telepathic communication with the bees, and to communicate with the bees as with his dead ancestors. The movie becomes then a mystical conversion between self and other. For every time he is with the bees, he has visions of his ancestors and sees the connections across time, especially because his ancestors are Iraqi. And so the missiles he has created are being used to kill his past and future selves. When I first saw the movie, it did not make sense exactly. But even though the movie itself was strange, there is something about bees buzzing and humming on a television set that does not make sense. As a poet, I have often seen the imagination as a kind of television set with the hum of the dead. Isn't speaking to the dead what poets do? Aren't poems a conversion, a mystical conversion between self and other? In life, I often think of my own body as a kind of conduit and I look at things in the everyday. A car here, the plants, maybe a road. And I imagine these things, these objects, my spirit in another body, in another time. 
I hum in and out, and what does anything make of me? I know for sure that I have been here before. I have walked this earth before as a being, as a person, and I have spoken to come back and speak again. Whatever the case, as poet in poetry, things that do not involve the occult, frankly, they just bore me. Bees are the hidden. I wrote this lecture for the bees, and what, as a living ghost, they have done for me. The bees as the things that we have done. Rudolf Steiner in his famous lectures on bees explains how the mystery of the bees is not just that they make honey, but that they create the hexagonal structures that store the food. They're not just creators, they create everything as everything is self-contained. He writes, having transformed the food by means of its own bodily substances into wax, this the bee produces out of itself the bees now make a special little container in which to deposit its egg or in which to store up food supplies. This special little vessel is, I would like to say, a really great marvel. It appears to be hexagonal when we look at it from above. Looked at from the side, it is closed in this way. Eggs can be deposited there or food can be stored. Each vessel lies next to another. They fit extremely well together so that the surface by which one cell, for so it is called, is joined to another in the honeycomb is exceedingly well made use of. The space is well used. Isn't that the way we always describe a poem? As William writes, there's nothing sentimental about a machine and a poem is a small or large machine made of words. When I say there's nothing sentimental about a poem, I mean that there can be no part as in any other machine that is redundant. How isn't what the bee makes a set of containers of well-used space, like the non-sentimental machine of a poem? Or is the bee's body itself the machine, the honey, and the wax storage structures the poem all together as one thing? Bees always make me think of telepathy. I think because I have long been in love with the movie Candyman. In that movie, if you haven't seen it, a graduate student named Helen Lyle is conducting an anthropologic study on urban legends and goes to the Chicago housing project Cabrini Green to study the legend of the Candyman. The story goes that Candyman is a spirit who haunts the project, causing evil and murder, especially when you call for him, and that in real life he was an artist and the son of a slave. He had lived a peaceful life as a successful artist until he fell in love with a white woman and got her pregnant. A lynch mob cut off his painting hand and spread honey on him, and the bees from an apiary stung him to death. According to legend, when you want to summon Candyman, you turn the lights off, stare into a mirror, and call Candyman, 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 and then he appears. He appears as the summoning of the self in the mirror. Because he died by bees, he carries a swarm of bees with him. And indeed, when he shows up, bees empty out of his cloak, flying everywhere. The image when it happens provides a hum. There is also a sweetness to him, despite his monstrosity, maybe from carrying around throughout time the honey and the bees. Early on in the movie, after he is summoned, Candyman wants to prove to Helen that he is real and not a story. She wakes from unconsciousness in a woman's apartment with the woman's baby missing and her dog decapitated, and Helen must defend herself from the frantic mother's attack. After this moment, Helen enters into a love descent with Candyman himself and eventually becomes an otherworldly being with him. 
The apartment scene that begins this turn is the most terrific one in the movie. The apartment light is cold, bright, a cheap fluorescence, and the blood everywhere is not softened. As viewers, we know Helen is not to blame exactly, yet there is guilt nonetheless. After all, we are all here as viewers, implicated in the not-not-real legend, a swarm of bees humming around the story. And even though the bees stun Candyman to death and are the symbol of destruction, of the demonization of him and Helen and others, the harbingers of death, one can't help but think within the movie that they bring a structure of goodness to the story. They make Candyman real. They are real bees and carry the dead Candyman upon summoning him. They live and create the neat hexagonal structures of their honeycomb, which is akin to the neat structure of the projects. They hum across a land of spirits that is and is not the real, but they are. Eric Bauss, one of my dearest friends, the kind of inspirational friend that, as Ted Berrigan writes, was that painter I could not get away from, ended his 2009 book, Toon Droves, with a poem called Orange Water that manifests real bees. The bloom, the boiling water, bees, real flowers release bees, real flowers bloom orange, real bees bloom in boiling water, real water releases bees, boiling real bees releases flowers, the flowers bloom, the bees bloom, the waters bloom, the boiling blooms, real flowers, real bees, real water, flowers are not real, bees are not real, water is not real, release the bees, boil the bees, Water the bees, real water, orange flowers, orange water. This poem has always stuck with me. It seems simple enough. It describes a person presumably boiling water in order to separate a solid into its components to separate liquids. At first, the moment really does seem to be about making tea. Even though bees is in the third phase, we still have real flowers release bees and real flowers blooming orange, which all seem real enough. It is not until the Real water releases bees that we realize we are in the space of magic. Real water doesn't release bees when it boils. All of a sudden, nothing is as it seems. There are real flowers, real bees, real water. And just as soon as the poem tells us none of these things are real. Flowers are not real. Bees are not real. Wait, no. And then no, even water is not real. Water isn't real, but we are made of water. How can this be? And then the only thing left to do is to release the bees, to boil them, to kill them, water them, soak them in water until they all drown and make us orange flowers and then orange water. That is what a poem can do. It can turn and twist as we boil the water to soak the bees, no drown and kill the bees, whose death has bloomed the miraculous orange flower, which leads the way. One January several years ago, I went to Cabrini Green to see the housing projects in Candyman to see if in real life it was the same as in my memory of its movie depiction. A gorgeous artist and curator, Hamza Walker, took me there in his car. It was snowing badly that night in Chicago, and as we got to the projects, I got out of the car and slid everywhere. I had worn slippery shoes coated in cheap glitter, and the ice and night were slippery, and I almost fell to the ground. But Hamza held me up, told me I needed some Chicago shoes. The projects had been recently demolished. There was nothing there that was like the movie, like in my memory. We got back in the car, and after looking for a few moments at an empty snowy field encased in a metal fence, we sped away.
The Roman poet Horace in his poem to Elius Antonius famously compares his work as a poet to that of a bee. Antonius, I am like the humble bee painstakingly seeking to find the honey in the thyme that grows in lowly fragrant groves and grows along the watery banks of Tivoli stream. My songs are made laboriously and slow. In this poem, the bee, like the poet, labors, gathering pollen, like language, like memory, so as to make the honey, to make this honey and reconfigure its body processes into wax to make the comb. And for what? For what we do not know. We only know it is all the plight of both poet and bee. In the poem, Horace tells Elias Antonius that this poet's lesser worldly plight is to celebrate Caesar, whereas Horace's work as a poet is to exalt the immortal human son. O oh, son, alluring and admirable. During the time Horace wrote, this poet, Elias Antonius, might have thought that Horace's bee-like work, worshiping the alluring sun was inconsequential compared to the poetic effort he put into worship, the all-powerful Caesar. But we know that Horace's eye actually does the work of a seer and has an otherworldly master, that his eye is one who steadily worships the divine in the natural world and has the ultimate power to conquer the universe. In Finnish folklore, there is the story of the Lemminkine who went to the North Country to try and win the hand of the fairest maiden in the land. An old cowherd, offended by Lemminkine's plight, killed him, cut his body into eight pieces, and threw him in the river. Lemminkine's mother fished his body pieces out with a magic rake and put the pieces back together again, only to make a speechless doll of a man. Knowing that she needed to give her son voice again, she called on the bees to help and bring him honey. But with all that we know of how hard bees work, her bees really had to work hard. For Lemminkine's sad mother, they traveled to Metsola's fair meadows to get Lemminkine a special honey, but this honey did not help him speak. So the bees traveled again, this time across nine lakes to an island, to bring back an even more special and powerful honey. So even this honey did not help her son. So on a third journey, the bees went past the stars to Jumala, the creator's realm, and brought back a honey that cured Lemminkine, who spoke and was alive again. The bee holds the magic honey that makes the voice of a poet, that can make an eye speak. And for this reason, the eye in poems not only becomes the powerful bee, it respects the work ethic of the bee, and in many cases tries to emulate it. The eye becomes humble, at the magic of the bee, and then takes this magic into their poems. There are so many bees in poems when you start looking for them, and I have found that once you start looking, you cannot stop. They almost start to swarm at you. Plath and the Bees. I don't just owe the movie television among the bees to my husband, Tom. I also owe to him the idea of intense autobiography, the drama of which I owe to the bees. One time several years ago, I saw Tom give a talk in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I think it was in Bushwick. I remember we were living in Woodside, Queens, and it was hard to get there. So that's where it must have been. It was in a small art space that my friend Stacy, a friend of an old friend of a friend, Katie Giha, had organized. I remember that Bernadette Mayer's son was in the audience, and I got very nervous to see him. It was like seeing royalty. He was the son of the queen. 
I remember I got very, very nervous when Tom introduced the idea of intense autobiography with a discussion of Hannah Wiener, Bernadette Mayer, and then threw my name in, all weighted, not really discussing my work, but throwing my real name in as part of this history. And I didn't want to look at anyone as he did this. I felt a real sense of shame. It made me almost start sweating and I could tell he was nervous too because we assumed people knew we were married so this was some sort of trick. Like when people mention their friends in their writing as I am doing here, we were part of the same hive. Especially in the first years we were together, I think that Tom wanted to distance his work from mine. I felt ashamed and narcissistic in my shame, like going to the pool or letting someone see my real face. There was a nakedness to my real name, my real identity. The poet can hide, can hide away in the space of being a bee, of being a being in the poem, of being just a name. But this assumption as he spoke my name that day just had so much narcissism. It's hard to know if people even knew we were together, knew what it was for him to say my name out loud in the public arena. In his discussion of intense autobiography, he talked about what it meant to see the self as a kind of biopolitic, a kind of body performance space, what it meant for a female poet to use the events of her life for her art. I think I agree that this is what a bee does. In Ariel, Sylvia Plath summons many bees. She uses bees as a kind of battle cry. In the arrival of the bee box, she describes the confinement of being a bee, of being a poet, a thing being been in this lifetime, in a box that by the end of the poem is only temporary. And her desire is to give these little bees, these poets, these dangerous poets or eyes a voice. How can I let them out? It is the noise that appalls me most of all, the unintelligible syllables. It is like a Roman mob small taken one by one but my god together i lay my ear to furious latin i am not a caesar i have simply ordered a box of maniacs they can be sent back they can die i need feed them nothing i am the owner in Hindu scripture, there is a story of Ashvin's twin horsemen who are the lords of light and are also honey bearing, who along with drawing white horses and ambrosial swans wherever they go, also bring honey to the bee and prolong human life with the magic of the bee, its honey. Because of this, honey was also used in rituals while people would sing. Anoint me with the honey of the bee that I may speak forceful speech among men. In Plath's poem, Stings, the eye of a beekeeper visit the bee box full of bees, their cheesecloth gauntlets, neat and sweet, with their thousand clean cells between us, and help to create for the bees the hive itself, which is a teacup, as she looks for the queen bee. What am I buying, wormy mahogany? Is there any queen at all in it? Sure, of course, that she is old, with wings torn shawls, a long body rubbed of its plush. Plath is sure that when she finds a queen, she will be so old and worn that she will be unqueenly and even shameful. And of course, there is the obvious comparison here. Sadly, many women, let alone female poets, feel that they are only as good as their youth and beauty. And that after their time of making is over, after they are old and gray, 
They are not useful to society anymore. They are not a queen to look for. In a hive, the whole society is ruled by females. The job of male bees, the drones, is only to mate with the queen. How useless these drones must feel. What poems would they write? The other bees in the hive are worker bees. They are all female and they make royal jelly to feed the queen larvae. And if there is more than one queen who has hatched from this process, the multiple queens fight to the death until one queen is triumphant and becomes the queen bee. In Plath's poem, as she wonders whether the queen bee she finds will be old, she converts herself into the queen bee, her queenly state unbeknownst to everyone, as she stands in a column of winged, unmiraculous women, honey dredgers. I am no drudge. Plath summons the queen bee, and her eye becomes her, especially as she ends the poem. They thought death was worth it, but I have a self to recover, a queen. Is she dead? Is she sleeping? Where has she been with her lion red body, her wings of glass? Now she is flying more terrible than she ever was. Red scar in the sky, red comet over the engine that killed her, the mausoleum, the wax house. Class I has become the queen bee, has taken on her power and gone beyond the women who only scurry, whose news is the open cherry, the open clover. She becomes the horrific thing, the shapeshifter bee monster who with unearthly bravado speaks for more than herself, who has summoned the demon of the duende, trapped it like the devil's horses, and rode it into the town square of the poem, smiling, a face full of brightly colored ribbons. In the poem, Plath is not a worker bee, a drudge meant to work and die with no great individual song. She is the queen bee and will make her book the book this poem is in, her final book, Ariel. She writes, it is almost over. I am in control. Here is my honey machine. It will work without thinking. As she takes on an identity of the queen bee, she will now scour the creaming crests as the moon for its ivory powders scours the sea. There's a grand being and make this poem this book. By the end of the poem, she uncovers the hive's queen bee, who is not willing to sting as a worker bee and die, but only to become queen and only queen, not one of the worker bees, the drudges, the winged, unmiraculous women, the worker females, those women who only scurry, whose news is the open cherry, the open clover, the drudges whose only job is to go out to the fields and return to the hive to serve the queen. Instead, by the end of the poem, when she finds the queen, her lion-red body, her wings of glass, more terrible than she ever was, red scar in the sky, red comet, she finds her own red self, the persona of the poem who is in control, the queen poet that the hive, the book, other poets, all of poetry, must serve and submit to. She has a terrible power, and the poem song, the swarm of it, brings it into being. The bees are flying, they taste the spring, Plath writes in the poem, wintering. But bees fly because they must. Do poets write poems because they must? Bees and poets fly and write, maybe because the spring is beautiful. It beckons with its soft fruits to the storage of sweet honey and beyond. In stings, the beekeeper becomes the bee. So too the poet becomes the poem, the hell that's all we've ever wanted. 
and still do. We know from Plath's biography that her father was a beekeeper, and this imagery is indebted to personal memory. And scholars have made much of this, but I don't think I should, and I don't think I will here. A poet who writes with intense autobiography, who writes of unreal events and makes them real, writes in a high drama. Maybe this is what Plath did. The eye of a poem is a place of high drama. When I write about everyday events, things that have actually happened in my life, I am sure they have occurred, but I am also creating the hive of the poem and becoming the queen bee. In a song called Bees in the Trap, Nicki Minaj sings of being in a place of the highest power as a poet. She sings, bitches ain't shit and they ain't saying nothing. A hundred motherfuckers can't tell me nothing. I bees in the trap, be bees in the trap. I bees in the trap, bee bees in the trap. And of course we are meant to realize that to be a bee is also to be a thing. It is the thing being been. Minaj plays with the words bee and being as homophones of bees. Her I bees or exists and plays on this grammatical variation on the word am. Minaj is in the trap of being a poet. She bees in the trap. To be in this hell here with you, with all of us, all she's ever wanted and still do. In the first line of her song, she talks about all of the lesser poets singing today who ain't saying nothing because they ain't shit. They have no mojo to bring to their eyes and their songs and subsequently their listeners. She goes on to say that even a hundred of them do not have the authority to sing as well as she does or to tell her what to do. Her eye bees, it is and it is not. It hates and loves, but more than anything, it has harnessed the duende and exists. Later she sings, if I weren't rapping, I'd be trapping. If I weren't trapping, I'd be pimping. If I weren't pimping, I'd be getting it, period. I don't smoke no Bobby, but my denim be from Ricky. Got your girl on Molly and we smoking loud and drinking. Got my top back so you can see what I've been thinking. And if you know me, then you know I've been thinking Franklin. Money, thousands. True religion trousers. Got a private home started from them public houses. Minaj's eye tells a story of what is overcome. It has started from public houses, but by the sheer force of will, talent, intelligence, and strength of spirit, her eye now has a private home, money in the thousands, and expensive costumes, these true religion trousers, that no matter what, she would be getting it, period, because of her superhuman swagger and muscle and her skill at making beautiful language. Minaj's eye empowers her listeners because when we hear her song, we feel all powerful too. And it is only because she selflessly strips her eye down bare to its nerve and is able to surround it with ineffable magic. It's also important to mention that the word bees can be a person who sleeps around and is used in a derogatory way to signify a woman who has sex a lot with many partners. Minaj undoubtedly is referencing this usage of the word too as a way to own this term and revive it with power and female empowerment. And Minaj is the bee, but she also bees, and she also bees in the trap, the trap of being the singer meant to sing, the bee equal being after all. Still, Plath's idea of being a queen bee is in Nicki Minaj's idea of being, that to be, is, that to be a bee is to rule. 
Lord, a young singer in her song Royals, sings to the audience that they should let me be your ruler. You can call me Queen Bee. Lil Kim in her song came back for you, sings to her fans, her real fans. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I am the one and only Queen Bee. After me, there will be none, but you should call me Miss White. Most people know me as Lil Kim, the head of the La Bella Mafia. Oh, shout out to my girl, Victoria Gotti, and the whole family stay up. It's the real hip hop mammy, check the facts. I'm sick of all you acts with your bubblegum raps. Like the sand in the hourglass, you out of your time. Tried to go against the queen, is you out of your mind? Even be at number two, your chances is slim. Cause when God made Adam, he should have made Kim. I gave a few passes, but I never forget. It's enough I got to put up with this doo-doo brown chick. Now you and you want to come at me from all sides. I'm getting money. Don't think I'd just be letting shit slide. In this song, she is the all-powerful poet, the queen. She lets her haters know she's boss, and her fans know that she came from the dead to sing to them, to let them know she is their boss. To both haters and fans, she is here to stay. She is quieting the Roman mob. She is their ruler. Rudolf Steiner talks about the work of worker bees and the queen bee, that their flight to collect pollen and turn it into honey is a marriage flight. I think that this is a moment of high drama too. He explains that the worker bees visit the flowers and the trees, but that they are children of the sun, just like the queen, and that their lives are governed by the length of time it takes for the sun to rotate on its axis. A length of time, he said, was 21 days, even though now we know otherwise. I think that when the poet is a queen bee, she speaks to her workers, but she also speaks for the sun. The queen bee is not like her workers. Like Plath says, they thought death was worth it, but I have a self to recover, a queen. The eye of the poet will always be the bee that is called back into the poem. The eye is the bee that is called back in a lion red body with her wings of glass. The worker bees live to visit the flowers and trees. Their marriage flight is in the swarm and is in the drama of the swarm. They are the children of the sun, as is the queen, but they are governed by the laws of the sun. The queen bee is governed by the laws of the swarm, which is the poem. The marriage flight she makes is with the self. There is no one like her. The flowers and trees come to her through being, and she is governed only by being the only one of her kind. The sun speaks through her, and sun and queen bee are the song of it all. Such sovereignty, such eternal dignity we see in bees. We hear this ring of unearthly claim in their song. The bees and love. How does the song go? That bees do it, that birds do it, bees do it, birds do it. The literary goddess Chris Krause has a song she sings when the bees have gotten too much for her. She said she made it up when she was taking a hike and all these bees swarmed her and she sang to them, Oh bees, please, oh bees, please, leave us in peace. Or this is how she typed out the song to me as when I told her I was writing this lecture, she offered this song. When I told my friend Robbie Dewhurst about this song, he told me once he and Chris were in her garden and all these bees swarmed them and they had to run inside like mad people. And now as I write this down to you, Robbie has recently become a bee husbander. 
But when the bees swarmed them in the garden, Chris offered her bee song to them. And when she wrote me about it, she said that she would sing it to me too. And that then she did the next time I saw her. And the song was sweet and sinister. And she repeated the last line so that the song is really, oh bees, please, oh bees, please, leave us in peace, leave us in peace. Maybe she didn't really need to write that last line twice when she sent it to me initially. Maybe when you write a poem, you can just write once when in person you might repeat. Maybe the notation of the poem is the intricate container of wax that can then fly away when you choose to leave the hive of the words. Sammy Davis Jr. has a song called The Candy Man, and in the song, The Candy Man is very powerful. He's all powerful. The song asks us, who can take a sunrise, sprinkle it with dew, cover it with chocolate and a miracle or two? The candy man. Oh, the candy man can. I forgot to say earlier that I started thinking seriously about the movie Candyman when I found a copy of its screenplay in a used bookstore. But the screenplay was the notation for the movie was the hive of the song. On the cover of the screenplay was a honeycomb. Of course, that story has always been about the bees. I think the convergence of self and other is a kind of forgiveness only the hum can bring. Maybe divine love is the forgiveness that a poet must be the bee to survive, but also must sing the bee song to sing. May Swenson has a love poem called Four Word Lines, in which the desire to be a flower pollinated by a bee is all a lover can hope for. Your eyes are just like bees and I feel like a flower. Their brown power makes a breeze go over my skin. And when your lashes ride down and rise like brown bees legs, your pronged gaze makes my eyes gauze. I wish we were in some shade or no swarm of other eyes to know that I'm a flower breathing bear laid open to your bees warm stare. I'd let you wade in me and seize with your eager brown bees power a sweet glistening at my core. And of course this sexual sublimity is what a flower might want, but a poet is not a flower, it's a bee, a real bee bloomed in real water. And Swenson knows that, so really even though she asked the you to be her bee, she turns into a bee herself in the act of loving, with her eyes gauze, her bee's eyes. Book four of Virgil's Georgics is all about bees. First, it uses bees as a kind of model of how humans should be, that they should work for the society and the greater good. Later in the book, Aristias loses his bees and tries to get them back by blinding a seer, but it doesn't work because he has angered too many nymphs. And Proteus tells him that his real crime was to kill Eurydice, the true love of Orpheus, who lost her twice to death and now must sing and long forever instead of having completeness. The end of the book is about the life of being a poet. You sing for the thing not even imaginable in your grasp. You are not the army man, as Virgil writes, who holds victory in the body. Your body is a corpse always beneath the beech tree. You rule the world only in the aftermath, in the spaces between the real and the living. Harold Acton, a poet and writer from the 20th century, wrote of a poem that it was as keen as a bee. Maybe the keenness of a bee is what all poems strive for. Love like devotion to a god is sweet. 
The candy man can make the everyday into candy. The bee can take a flower who is destined to die and make the immortal liquid that can cure anything, that can make the unsinging sing again. The poet, too, can do a lot, but the poem cannot cure the unseen from its seeing. It must be and being. There is no peace. Intuition, the echo of the future. Perhaps bees, a swarm of bees, are related to intuition. Intuition, the echo of the future. Perhaps bees, a swarm of bees, are related to intuition. Maybe that's what ghosts are. Maybe that's what poems do. What is the feeling we feel when we know something is amiss? Is it just chance or do we really know something? Is life about finding our mystical opposites and forgiveness, forgiving ourselves in another dimension, creating the comb in the hive? And when we know the spiritual other, do we forgive it still through song? Being a poet is about telepathy and intuition. It's about knowing things that you can't know you know. Have you ever had that experience when reading a poem that the poem knows you? I have. It has happened when reading and writing a poem. Sometimes I've written things within a poem that I couldn't have known would come true years later. What part of me knew? Was it my swarm self in another space that spoke to me through song? What is the swarm of bees that enters a poem when language is created? What is the radio the poet is tapping into with its gentle hum? It is the thing of being, moving around, and absorbing energy. Several years ago, in a summer writing program at Amherst, I met a fantastic poet named Lynn Houston, who had, for an entire cycle already, raised a family of bees. She didn't know that I was thinking about bees and poetry so much when she told our group about queens and wild queens, when she discussed her babies as a group of female warriors kept in a hive. Maybe she did or did not know in those moments when she recounted to me about the bees that she belonged to a lineage of great wild, wild women. We were poets, all of us. A bit into her bees stories, Lynn describes how she had recently found out she was deathly allergic to bee stings and had almost died when a swarm attacked her. She said she was feeding the bees and had not suited up properly because she was in a hurry, and the bees kind of flipped out, thinking that their queen was in danger, and after a few seconds all came at her and stung her, hundreds of them, and then she went into shock and narrowly survived the attack. What struck me in her story was the way she described the sounds of the bees and how these sounds change when they are about to attack. She described the normal hum when bees are happy in the hive, then how they shift to a louder tone and then to a screeching sound when they are about to attack, which in my imagination sounds like a scene in a traditional horror film when the murderer has come into the room with a knife and sets it in the air to stab you. Maybe I was thinking of the shower scene in Psycho a bit, Yet the swarm of knives seems even so much more sinister. In a conference paper called Silent Summer, Lynn gave at the Western Literature Association Conference in Berkeley during the fall of 2013. She described these sounds more eloquently than I could even begin to, so I will share some of her writing with you now. Bees make noise through the vibration of their wings. When you approach a healthy hive of bees, you hear a hum, a sound that ends in a um, this is their tranquil resting go about their business noise. It becomes even duller at night, just the letter M mm, when most of them retreat deep in the hive. 
Once you get close enough to the hive, guard bees that stand along the entrance will spot you and begin a new sound that is picked up by the rest of the hive, a song that warns of a potential intruder. That's when the B and the Z sounds start, which can rise to the same sound, ending in a sharper staccato t if you make more movements to approach. This is often the sound the bees make as you open a hive, expose it to the sun, and begin examining the frames. Eventually, sooner, if you jar or knock any of the hive furniture, the disturbance to the hive increases the pitch to almost a siren, an err sound, aggressive. At this point, bees begin to fly around you and land on you, trying to find a vulnerable place to attack this intruder to their home. Your movement, smell, and exaltation of breath, if not controlled, could convince them that you mean harm, at which point the guard bees fly straight into your face with a very high-pitched free. Of course it is the bes and re a person would need to look out for before it was too late, but maybe it would be too late. Maybe it is the bes that are the worst because things are about to get bad. And is this where we get the buzz of buzzing bees from? Do we ever as humans hear the hum? Or is every sound of a bee a battle cry calling out to the wild for the brethren in search of solidarity and aid? And how do the bees speak to one another to communicate when it is time to worry, to attack? It is an intuition they speak together. It is sound. But are these things one and the same? I do not know. Mentioned the bees in Virgil's Georgics a bit earlier. Even in their glory, there is no escape from the poison darts, the bees' anger, the poet strikes. He writes, There is no end to the wrath of bees. Vexed, they'll inflame their stings with poison and fastening to a vein, deposit darts that you can't see. Inflicting harm, they'll forfeit their own lives. The more trials sent to test them, the keener they become, one and all, to throw themselves into the mending of their tumbled world. Perhaps here, too, Virgil makes the bee akin to a poet. After all, it is a poet who also becomes keener with the more trials sent to test them. The more a poet has to translate emotion and thought into language, the sharper their ability to do it again and better the next time. The best poems are the ones a poet is just about to write. Fifteen years ago now, I taught some third graders and a writer in the school's program. We were reading W.S. Merwin together, and we read it, when we read his poem Vixen during class, the children noticed that he did not use punctuation. It was probably in that moment that I decided to use as little punctuation as possible in my poems. Merwin did this to create poems that spring off the page. Maybe he did it, too, to let the poems be bees free and wild from their honeycomb. Merwin's poem, The River of Bees, describes a swarm of them, come to speak through intuitive forces and the dream world. In a dream, I return to the river of bees, five orange trees by the bridge and beside two mills, my house, into whose courtyard a blind man followed the goats and stood singing of what was older. Soon it will be 15 years. He was old, he will have fallen into his eyes. I took my eyes a long way to the calendars, room after room, asking how shall I live? One of the ends is made of streets. One man processions carry through it. Empty bottles there, image of hope. It was offered to me by name. Once, once, and once, in the same city I was born, asking what shall I say? He will have fallen into his mouth. Men think they are better than grass. 
I returned to his voice, rising like a fork full of hay. He was old, he is not real, nothing is real, nor the noise of death drawing water. We are the echo of the future. On the door it says what to do to survive, but we were not born to survive, only to live. This poem reverberates with the Eric Bass poem I discussed earlier. Merwin exclaims towards the end of the poem that the man he describes is not real and nothing is real. Bass explains something awful in his poem too. As he writes, flowers are not real, bees are not real, water is not real. In Merwin's poem, we see a man who is actually blind follow the sound of bees into the day, obliterated by the beauty of nature, the five orange trees, so that he may or may not be able to see, but can intuit. He knows it. He goes into it. Merwin reminds us in his poem that we are not real, and this is because we are not meant to be. We are meant only to live, and that that in and of itself is not a reality, because the physical existences we get so used to in bodies are endlessly changing until the alchemy of death renders them into a form that is so unlike what is familiar as a human being, it must not be real at all. Merwin also writes, we are the echo of the future. I think that this is a very real thing. In a poem, we echo what will already be. Maybe we make what will be by being it already through language. Whatever the case, the man in Merwin's poem is always me because I can read it. The man is Merwin too, and he is you too, because when the bees read, they speak for all of us to warn of the impending end we all face, but we face it with bitter breath together in a never ending song. The bee, the splendid spring, the fall. In To Make a Prairie, Dickinson writes, To make a prairie, it takes a clover and one bee, one clover and a bee, and reverie. The reverie alone will do if bees are few. I've always thought that in this poem, she means to say that you can make an expansive space of nature. You can make in your mind a wide open field of flowers and being with just one clover and a bee, and of course, reverie. But by the end of this short poem, we learn that in the absence of bees, you must have daydreaming, you must have reverie. And in such a short time, she shows us that bees and daydreaming are somehow the same. The bees make dreams appear. In a letter to her sister-in-law, Susie Gilbert, from the winter of 1853, Dickinson writes, How fast we will have to talk then. There will be those farewell gaieties, and all the days before, of which I have had no fact, and there will be your absence, and your presence, my Susie dear, sweetest and brightest, and best of every and all the themes. It is sweet to talk, dear Susie, with those whom God has given us, lest we should be alone, that you and I have tasted it and found it very sweet, even as fragrant flowers over which the bee hums and lingers and hums more for the lingering. I find it very lonely to part with one of mine and mine especially, and the days will have more hours while you are gone away. Susan Gilbert was married to Dickinson's brother, Austin. Many scholars believe Susie was the love of Dickinson's life and her muse. She showed more of her poems to Susie than to any other human being. She lived across Dickinson's lawn in her brother's house her entire married life, and Dickinson called again and again to her in letters like this one. 
Whatever the true nature of Dickinson's emotions, one can feel the aching Dickinson expresses to Gilbert as she writes of her presence, which is the sweetest and brightest, and so very sweet, even as fragrant flowers over which the bee hums and lingers and hums more for the lingering. Just like many of the other poets I have discussed in this lecture, Dickinson makes the work of a poet akin to a bee's. For just as the bee lingers more over the sweetest flowers and gives off in sound a non-threatening hum, a poet too in the midst of beauty sings more in the space of it, not to survive because that's not the point, but to live. The bees talking, the sweetest bees. Walt Whitman in Specimen Days writes of bumblebees. May month, month of swarming, singing, mating birds, the bumblebee month, month of the flowering lilac, and then my own birth month. Walt Whitman in Specimen Days writes of bumblebees. May month, month of swarming, singing, mating birds, the bumblebee month, month of the flowering lilac, and then my own birth month. And he writes of the sensual overload of nature and living. And because he is a poet, he feels to record this overload with his characteristic and large undulating detail. The blue birds, grass birds, and robins in every direction. The croaking of the pond frogs and the first white of the dogwood blossoms. Now the golden dandelions in endless profusion spouting the ground everywhere. The white cherry and pear blows. The wild violets. But it is in the bees that capture his poet heart with their metaphysical kinship. As he writes, the bees are conveying to me a new and pronounced sense of strength, beauty, vitality, and movement with the deep musical drone of these bees, flitting, balancing, darting to and fro about me by hundreds, big fellows with light yellow jackets, great glistening swelling bodies, stumpy heads and gauzy wings, humming their perpetual rich, mellow boom. Is there not a hint in it for a musical composition of which it should be the background? some bumblebee symphony. These wild bees, whose loud and steady humming makes an undertone to the whole and to my mood and the hour. For Whitman, it is the hum of the bees that makes them like the poet with the gift of musical composition of song. They are overwhelmingly strong, beautiful, and vital with immense mojo. They have magic in their song, creating a symphony with their loud and steady humming, with their overwhelming power, which overtakes even a wild garden in spring. In their incessant undertone, they overtake everything. Whitman's Give Me the Splendid Silent Sun, a love poem about the fall in Manhattan talks of bees. Keep your splendid silent sun, keep your woods, O nature, and the quiet places by the woods. Keep your fields of clover and timothy and your cornfields and orchards. Keep the blossoming buckwheat fields where the ninth month bees hum. Give me faces and streets. Give me these phantoms incessant and endless along the trotters. Give me interminable eyes. Give me women. Give me comrades and lovers by the thousands. Let me see new ones every day. Let me hold new ones by the hand every day. Give me such shows. Give me the streets of Manhattan. Give me Broadway with the soldiers marching. Give me the sound of the trumpets and drums. The soldiers and companies or regiments, some starting away, flushed and reckless. Some, their time up, returning with thinned ranks, young yet very old, worn, marching, noticing nothing. Give me the shores and the wharves, heavy fringed with the black ships. Oh, such for me, 
Oh, an intense life. Oh, full to repletion and varied. The life of the theater, barroom, huge hotel for me. The saloon of the steamer. The crowded exertion for me. The torchlight procession. The dense brigade bound for war with high piled military wagons following. People endless streaming with strong voices, passions, pageants. Manhattan streets with their powerful throbs with the beating drums as now. The endless and noisy chorus, the rustle and clank of muskets, even the sight of the wounded. Manhattan crowds with their turbulent musical chorus with varied chorus and light of their sparkling eyes. Manhattan faces and eyes forever for me. Whitman mentions the ninth month bees in the space of a bright day and within the endless and noisy chorus of the Manhattan crowds that he loves with their turbulent musical chorus was very chorus, their gorgeous urban hum. These ninth month bees are so odd. They seem not of this world. And I, for one, am not sure what ninth month is supposed to mean. I think it means September, that this walk is the end of summer, as newness of sun is silent and diminishing. These bees are old. I also think, of course, of childbirth and the gestation of a human baby. And the ninth month the baby as a being inside the womb is over, and it must be born, but also reborn in a way. It is entering the world in the form that we can fathom it as living humans, but it has already lived an entire lifetime as a being inside the hive of its mother's womb. It dies in a way to be born and with us. I once did Elizabeth Cray's fabulous Walt Whitman walking tour of historic New York City. I learned so much about Whitman on that day. Cray had us go through several locations on Broadway that most of us, especially the seasoned New Yorkers, might have taken for granted. Regular old bodegas and shops. In one particularly interesting part of the tour, we stopped in front of Victoria's Secret on Broadway, which used to be a brothel. I can't tell you how much it delights me to encounter this Victoria's Secret now and to know this secret to this day. What I really learned in the tour was something else about the sound and length of Whitman's lines that Cray may or may not have intended me to uncover. Part of the tour has you walk along until you get to Brooklyn. It is a relatively long walk and one that Whitman did almost daily. While walking along, I had an almost mystical experience and heard not just the sound of the cars and people along the road, but the horse-drawn carriages of Whitman's day, the endless and noisy chorus. Suddenly I realized why his lines were long and extended seemingly on and on. The walk like poetry, like Manhattan, had no end. The bee's song was an endless splendid spring that we must walk along. And it's an honor to make this walk my lifeline. John Keats, in an 1818 letter to his friend John Hamilton Reynolds, writes of the bees. It has been an old comparison for our urging on the beehive, however, it seems to me that we should rather be the flower than the bee, for it is a false notion that more is gained by receiving than giving. No, the receiver and the giver are equal in their benefits. The flower, I doubt not, receives a fair guerdon from the bee. Its leaves blush deeper in the next spring. And who shall say between man and woman which is the most delighted? Now it is more to sit like Jove than to fly like Mercury. Let us not therefore go hurrying around and collecting honey. Be like buzzing here and there impatiently from a knowledge of what is to be arrived at 
but let us open our leaves like a flower and be passive and receptive, budding patiently under the eye of Apollo and taking hints from every noble insect that favors us with a visit. Sap will be given us for meat and dew for drink. I was led into these thoughts, my dear Reynolds, by the beauty of the morning operating on a sense of idleness. I have not read any books. The morning said I was right. I had no idea but of the morning, and the thrush said I was right. It seems as if Keats might agree with Dickinson's poem that bees are related to reverie, as he seems to favor the scene of bees and flowers and the sense of idleness of daydreams which make poetry. Still, he seems to favor the passive work of a flower to that of a bee. The bee actively collects pollen, but Keats thinks it is better to accept what the world gives as knowledge, to not seek it out as a master of knowledge, but as a receiver. I think that he is right in part. A poet must listen to the radio waves of this world and the next one and respond through poetry. It's true. But I think the poet must be more than the flower. He must be the bee with all its valor to leave the inside and seek the truth. James Schuyler in Hymn to Life writes, Through it all the forsythia begins to bloom, brown and yellow and warm as lit gas jets, clinging like bees to the arching canes where starlings take cover from foraging cats. Not to know, what have these years of living and being lived taught us? Not to quarrel, scarcely. You want to shoot pool. I want to go home. I think I prefer Schuyler's relationship to the bees to Keats. After all, being a bee and a flower is about living. And what have these years of living and being lived taught us anyway? There is strife everywhere, even in our most intimate relationships. We don't share the same goals. You want to shoot pool. I want to go home. As people, we don't move as bees, all knowing what we are meant to do to make the queen, to protect the queen, to be the queen, to be a wild queen. No, Schuyler would not like to come back to life as a flower. He wants to come back into his voice as a bee. After all, orange flowers, the bees, none of it is real. Only the voice, the sound is real. Replace everything else for sound, the poems tell us. The Gray Room. In the room of my life, Anne Sexton describes the room of her life, where the objects keep changing, but all hang like a cave of bees that she feels and feeds as its own world. It is in this room, with its endless pit of bees, that the sea bangs in her throat. My favorite poems are the ones with broken lyrics and gut-wrenching imaginative realism. I think it is because, too, they make me think of bees, because a bee's life is broken just from the start of it. Everyone knows that the events and poems are real and then aren't too. Even if they happened, that doesn't mean they are real. Most readers of poems don't have the privilege of knowing the difference. If the poem means something and lasts, they won't know the poet is a real person. Just as an abstraction, a set of black type on a page or sound wavelength on recording. That's it. So is the plight of a poet for naught Oh, I don't think so. What's more important to a poem is real pain, and pain can be sweet. It has to feel real, whatever that means. And I think that poems that feel real are somehow beyond the real. What is the pure being that is the poet that writes the poem? It is never pure. It never speaks from a pure place. It is the monster in the poem with a confusing set of emotions, 
based in real love and real hate. It is a swarm of bees flying everywhere. After all, not everyone is aware there is a demon queen living inside of each of us. But the poet knows the, de the demon fractures the self into its mystical opposites. It does it for the love of you. Dear reader, the pure me loves you. Remember, the bees are flying. They taste the spring. You know I've always loved you. We lived as one in dreams. And I'll come back again to tell you so. Just watch me. And now, a brief conversation in which Lasky begins by thinking about the ways bees and poets are akin to one another. I was thinking when I was reading it, just this idea of the bee, like as a poet, do you ever think about that? Or um, I guess you can call anything a poet, you know, poets, but, you know, I wouldn't really necessarily say a dog is like a poet, you know what I mean? Like, or like, a, I can't think, you know, a flag is like a poet. Like there is something that does feel like there's a kinship between bees and poets. I'm thinking about your poem, Become a Person, where the poem ends, be a person, be a person again, you start to hear that be, there's something about like being alive is like being, it's the work of creating vibration. And I think about making poems that way, that poems are these vibrations, the shape that you can move into. I love that idea of like, you know, yeah, that, that word be, thank you for knowing that poem. And like, um, yeah, that word, um, that word be, you know, as related to be and like, I'm always I know that in all of our conversations we've had for this um, podcast and episodes, you know, we have been going into different metaphysical territories or whatever, um, that, you know, are not necessarily like provable, or we can't totally get logic wrapped around it. But where where there is like this word that is the the thing you know like like the word be and then there's this object in be I always think of that as a key of some sort I know the path of that key is can be maddening and you can lose yourself quickly and the lack of logic in it but I always want to hold on to that yeah moment I feel like poems help us hold on to that moment where things have that kind of residual meaning and we as humans, you know, can't make sense of it. And, but, but it is there, right? I mean, it is yeah. there. Um, yeah. And there's so many ways that language like give us these, gives us these clues, you know, and we'll never really be able to figure it out. And that's what's like, yeah, really and frustrating, but makes it interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How have bees moved in your life? actual bees and also you know like even things like honey like do you like honey do you use it in <laughs> rituals or writing or like spellbinder or something you know, do you have like relationships with bees in the physical world um well I feel like I don't exactly have like a really long-term bee relationship. I have this relationship to basically to flies. Yeah, when I was little, I like was friends with flies. I like guess the only way to say it. Like I didn't really have a lot of human friends. And in fourth grade, we kind of did this science experiment with horse flies. And we had like a place where we were raising them. And I kind of, 
you know, and recess would like rush to spend time with them and, you know, look at them and study them. And I felt really like they were my real friends. So I've always had this, like, when I see a, you know, a fly, I'm like, I get you, you know, or we're friends, like we're buddies. But with bees, I really don't. But um, what's weird is, and thank you so much for mentioning that poem, but when I was writing Milk, for some reason, um, when I was, you know, nursing or lactating, bees were crazily attracted to me. It was I had to wear, like, when I went outside, I had to wear a beekeeper's hat um, because they would just, I would just find bees in my hair, like, not stinging me, um, just, like, on me. And it was so weird. (laughs) And I I guess that they were just um, responding to the hormone because it doesn't, it never happened, you know, any other time. But um, I would always just, like, hear them buzzing you know in like in my hair and they'd be like falling out of it and yeah one time I um like walked past a hive I didn't realize it but you know someone had taken it like I guess it maybe it was like a hornet so maybe it wasn't a bee like out of a tree or something like that and they you know th- those ones stung me you know because I kind of ran through like a swarm mm-hmm. of the hornet oh. around around this time so I, I kind of felt a lot of you know deep respect yeah, just this weird, I wouldn't say like a friendliness, but um, like they were trying to tell me something kind of feeling, you know, or they were that the, just the, the magic of attraction was, was really interesting. Um, and just that they were so quickly not, it's not like they're always my friends. Are there other animals or non-animals that kind of buzz for you in the way that a bee might show up in a poem but it's not a bee well I do think I have like a a dog thing I wish I had more animals in my poems I mean I know they're there I mean I guess that I have snakes you know yes yeah a lot for whatever reason even though I don't Oh, and I guess I have like, you know, rodents, which I hate. Yes. Rodents. Like those, those things. I guess I use snakes a lot and I, I, you know, I have never had a relationship to a snake. I think of them like bees, you know, they're, they have that kind of mystical air to them. Do you have any animals that, you know, or that buzz around you in your poems? Well, lately I've been writing poems with pigs in them. I've kind of been joking about it. Like, it's really freeing to put a pig in a poem because, or if you say, like, I'm writing poems about pigs, like, the bar is suddenly so low <laughs> that you, <laughs> you can really do anything that you want. Oh, you can talk about anything. I'm sort of working from the assumption that people don't think that highly of pigs, you know, even though they're super intelligent and they're the most slaughtered domestic animal that we have so we obviously have like a complicated relationship with them the sanctuary that we um that we volunteer at is all like rescued farm animals and the stories are just they all have just these awful abusive paths i don't think you can be in a space with a being like that and not just recognize that, you know, that shared uh, desire to live. 
Yeah, just thinking about what we're saying about intuition and scent and sound, you know, just what you're saying about being with another living being and just recognizing they want to live too. I feel like that that heightened sense of things would would kind of give us more insight into these connections like the verb be and the object be. I mean, I know that sounds maybe counterintuitive because we want to think that that's just having whatever, you know, brain conceptual knowledge or figuring something out in a systematic way. But I feel like, um, yeah, if we had the senses of bees, that maybe we could figure that out. And, and also, I kind of am a believer that we might actually have that strength. We just don't um, acknowledge it or we try as best as we can to dampen it. Yeah, yeah. And I was thinking of how you say poetry is telepathy and intuition. Mm-hmm. And um, what is to say that bees don't use those same tools to communicate as well? right? Like maybe we recognize movement and odor, but um, there might be these other ways as well. Yeah. Um, I remember when we had the conversation um, with Vinny, uh, right? Um, and he said something which I kind of do want to agree with, that that really all these ideas about the spiritual world and ghosts and telepathy and creativity, you know, all those things are just that we haven't sort of, we don't, we don't have the like way to articulate it yet, but it's probably is like kind of scientific phenomena or, you know, it's, it's yeah. as coldly rational as like knowing that you can kill, you know, a bacterial infection with antibiotics. Like it's probably like, yeah, bees are tapping into this wavelength or something that we tap into when we have a spiritual thing or when we have, the intuition of a poem or something and it's really like no big whoop but we kind of make it you know um like we make it sort of obscured in some way or something but But my experience with them is so limited too I, i where my mom lives there's there was this old juniper tree that overhung the road and um, there was a huge honeycomb in it that I did not know about until it was cut down by like the power company. And, um, and in doing that, they cut into this comb and there were, there were like five or six huge slabs of honeycomb there. And once I saw that, it was just like this wound, honey was dripping off of it and part of it was dying or dried out and, there would be some bees kind of flying around it. And so every time I would go and see my mom, I would go down there and kind of check on it. Not that I was doing anything about it, but just to see it. And this last time I was there, there were no bees left. It was like amazing and devastating to see. That's like my biggest bee experience right there. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I feel, I feel that like, it's almost, yeah, it feels so violent the way you, you know, describe it. And my mom always collected art. And one time one of her vases, you know, fell to the ground and I just felt like it was so, so violent. I mean, somebody Mm -hmm. else, you know, might've, okay, a vase broke or something, but you know, like the way that a bowl can break or something, but I, it's just that that feeling of that very like intricate care that the artist took to make the bait, you know, and just feeling that too, like thinking about 
the life's work of all those bees that just is like destroyed in one strike or something. And I feel it's like what the horror is of, of all violence, you know, that, it, you know, to hurt a person, it's like this really intricate structure of someone that like a lot went into getting them like alive and, you know, yeah. raising them and like all this time and how people can just coldly, you know, strike that down. Like that same, same, just, I think it's the idea of like effort, all the effort of all those, you know, bees and like, yeah, that it was destroyed, you know, and maybe it's good in our like present day trying to figure out like what is like our society anymore or something, yeah. but bees and their honeycomb and um their society and their way of organizing themselves like it's like this kind of complete structure you know they they sort of make and have everything they have such a it at least from our perspective I mean they might be thinking like uh this is total chaos but the way we you know maybe see it that it's like this order and that everyone sort of has a job and your question like how can humans emulate these these kind of ways that bees are so self-sufficient without taking more away from anybody else. I feel so inept <laughs> in the face of that question. Yeah, it's. I think it does kind of tie back to just thinking about intuition or clairvoyance or whatever, whatever you want to call it, would make that just the way that you would behave maybe. Yeah, really idealizing it, but um, but I just feel like we are so 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 cut off from our conscience or you know feel emotional something, um, and maybe you know in my most paranoid feelings that that we've been cut off on purpose, you know mm-hmm. we are like that. But um, I certainly feel like they ha- must have some lessons to teach us because <laughs> it would be. I don't know, it would be, <laughs> the B word is coming up, it's probably not fair, it's probably chaos, and maybe it is because we have some perspective that we see the their honeycombs as orderly, and maybe when they're in there, it just seems like really wild and, and crazy, and maybe it is just that, that, you know, the lesson is just stepping back in some way, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, to see the honeycomb or see our place the ways that bees um, create vibration feels like it's connected at least in my limited understanding and language to things like intuition or being open to other ways of understanding the world or maybe not understanding, maybe just being open to it without understanding it, that there's something about vibration that can make room or something and I do think that poems do that yeah I I feel like um I feel like sound and vibration like it's yeah it's often used in kind of you know new agey ways or like popular way you know sending good vibes or mm-hmm. you know, the ways that it's seen as um vapid or something like that but I feel like it is so so important to like the immortal landscape in that way like I feel because I do feel you know us as like you know kind of trapped in bodies or free in body whatever you want to think about it we're really you know we're kind of just sort of 
all these things sort of stuck together. And I think of sound as something much like scent, you know, that has the possibility to travel in ways that we can't fully understand. And I think that, you know, that, that the poem does that and, you know, in the best, in the best way, you know, that poems do that and um, interact in, in these sound ways that you can't ever fully articulate or figure out. And that that's like, that, that, that that's why they continue to, you know, humans continue to like them, even if they like malign them, people like shit or whatever. But, um, you know, yeah, like it's, um, yeah, like that sound and, and scent, I feel like, which, you know, thinking about like bees using scent is like a similar thing. Like it kind of travels on this like immortal, like line that isn't, doesn't have to be trapped in something. I mean, you, cause you, cause both are kind of the invisible, you know, they're, they're like things that are really changing a space, but you, it's hard for us to really explain why all the time. Like we just tend to be so hung up, I feel like on, yeah, on like the kind of the tangible and the visible and um, I feel like, yeah, I feel like bees have a lot going on in the invisible realm. That was Dorothea Lasky giving her lecture, The Bees. Lasky's book of collected Bagley Wright Lecture Series lectures, Animal, was published by WAVE in 2019 and is available for purchase at wavepoetry.com, via bookshop.org, and at your local independent bookstore. Visit us at our website, bagleywrightlectures.org, for more information about these and other lectures by Joshua Beckman, Dorothea Lasky, Timothy Donnelly, Srikanth Reddy, Terence Hayes, Rachel Zucker, Cedar Saigo, Renee Gladman, Lisa Jarnot, and Douglas Kearney, as well as links to supplementary materials on each lecturer's archive page, including selected writings and a link to available books. This podcast was produced by me, Ellen Welker, with help from Caitlin Airy Johnson. Thank you for listening. And please stay tuned for Season 3, The Bagley Wright Lectures of Terence Hayes. Music is I Recall by Blue Dot Sessions, from the Free Music Archive, CC by NC.